Well, good morning. It is uh, so good to be with you today. Uh, most of you know our senior pastor, Pastor Chitty, who was on the video. He, uh, he is um, away on vacation this week. He and his family typically uh, go over to the beach for uh, Christmas vacation uh, the week before, and so um, I'm delighted to be here with you this morning. I want to say good morning to everybody in the main auditorium today. Um, I want to remind you about the Christmas Eve service. I know it's already been said, but we want to remind you once again about the Christmas Eve service. Um, this coming Tuesday, it'll be at 5 p.m. in the main auditorium. We will not have anything over here, so if you show up, uh, you will be alone, so make sure you are, you are here um, this Tuesday at 5 p.m., and uh, we're excited about that. Pastor will be back to share with us, um, so it'll be a, a good evening for us. This morning, I want to uh, go ahead and jump in uh, neck deep because we have a lot of territory to cover, and you're going to have to listen incredibly quickly. The first service did not listen very effectively, and therefore, we went over a little bit, but uh, this morning, we, uh, we got some territory to cover. I'm excited about it, so I want to go ahead and jump in. I want to talk to you this morning about the provision that Christmas brings. I don't want to talk to us uh, today merely about the immediate provision that Christmas brings, but I want to talk to us about the historical aspect, the days that we live in today, the benefits that we are receiving today because of what happened a couple of thousand years ago. And so uh, this morning, I want to uh, d uh, dive in a little bit to the Christmas story. We'll get here in a minute, but I also want to kind of lay what I would call a foundation for us, just so we have a working knowledge of what I mean when I say provision. Uh, in general, there are about three different levels of provision I would classify. The first level of provision is what I would call a simple provision. Uh, this is when the Lord gives us air to breathe, which we're all thankful for. This is when uh, the Lord gives us food to eat and water to drink. Uh, this is a very simple level of provision that comes in every day of our lives for every person who's alive and breathing. The second level of provision is what I would call societal provision. What I mean by societal is I mean there have been provisions that are made for all of us on relational levels, on societal levels, when it comes to um, uh, equal rights, when it comes to um, rights in a global sense and the value of human life. God has made tremendous benefit and provision for all people when it comes uh, to being on a societal level. And then finally, on a salvatic level, we know that God has provided through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus, we have salvation through that, and that's the third level of provision. Now, if there's anything that I've learned about provision in my time as a believer, it's this, is that provision is a very mysterious, confusing, frustrating at times thing that we experience as believers. Um, I'll give you an example. About 15 years ago, I guess, um, my wife and I, we served at a church in Panama City as youth pastors, and we uh, were in a very healthy church, a church of a little over 500, and uh, it was very, very healthy. We had a change in senior leadership, and uh, there were some problems that kind of rose to the surface. And um, about two years into that transition, uh, we literally went through a church split. You hear about church splits? Our church literally split in half. And uh, one group went one way, and the uh, remaining remnant stayed. And we stayed with the church family, and um, obviously the church went through, um, you know, a dip financially. And so Joy and I found ourselves, along with the other staff, 
we found ourselves in uh, not really a financial predicament, but let's just say we weren't flourishing financially, okay? Um, and we were a growing family at that time. See, now we have six in our family. At that time, it was just three of us and one on the way. And so we were a single car family. We only had one vehicle. And um, I'll never forget, uh, one day I was leaving work and I was going to a meeting for work. And I get this phone call from my wife, Joy. She is incredibly frantic. She is hysterical. And it's not the phone call that any husband ever wants to receive. And she calls me and she says, I need you to find a way to come and get me. I'm at this location and all this. She said, we've just been in a car accident. And so I throw the phone down and I leave the meeting. I find a ride and I, I go over there and uh, I find the vehicle before I find my family. And the vehicle is not on the right-hand side of the road where it should be. The vehicle has been T-boned and is now in the ditch on this side of the road. And uh, it was a horrific scene. There was, there was blood in the vehicle because of the, the glass shards and everything. The vehicle was totaled. I mean, absolutely totaled. Uh, it just so happened that a young guy had blazed through a stop sign at about double the speed limit and, and just hit them dead on. And um, thankfully, everybody was fine. We sent her to the hospital. She was about seven months pregnant at the time. And uh, we sent them to the hospital. We were just so concerned that something was wrong with one of them. And uh, thank God nothing was wrong. And so... Um, um, we, we went home and everything, but we were still in a situation because we no longer had a vehicle, right? Uh, we are about to be a four-person family with no vehicle. And so um, we had some people in our family, they kind of made provisions so that uh, we could borrow one of their vehicles for a little while until we could get on our feet and uh, purchase a vehicle. And so um, I remember there was a, a family in the church who um, were very close with us. They, uh, they kind of took us in almost like their second kids. They were about 10 or 15 years older than us, and uh, we, cher we cherish them today. We're still really good friends. But um, every year at Christmas time, we would go over to their house, and they would come over to our house, and um, we would exchange gifts and have dinner and all this kind of stuff. And uh, this particular Christmas, just a couple of months after the, the car accident happened, we still didn't have a vehicle. We just couldn't afford a vehicle. And so... Um, this family came over, and we, um, we ate dinner together, and we exchanged gifts. I think we got them a mug or something like that that year. And uh, the, the man comes over to me, and he says, uh, well, your wife's been given a gift, and the kids have got gifts. I want to give you a, a special gift. And so I say, okay, and he hands me this little tube, and uh, it's actually like a Pringles can of Pringles chips. And I'm like, this is the oddest thing. If this dude got me chips, I'm, I'm going to eat them, but I'm not going to be happy about it, you know? Um, so I'm like, I had the, the, the can in my hand is wrapped up, you know, I'm kind of playing it up and I'm like shaking, I'm like, I wonder what's in here, you know, chips. And so um, I go and he says, just go ahead and unwrap it. And so I unwrap it. And as I'm, as I'm unwrapping it, I'm thinking in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I think I know what's about to happen. And this cannot be possible that what I think is about to happen is about to happen. And so I go to open it and I, I dump out the tube and in my hand falls a set of car keys. And the couple comes and they said, listen, they said, we know you're uh, having really uh, a difficult time financially. We know that you don't have vehicle and, you know, nothing. We want to give you our vehicle with no strings attached. I said, no strings attached? He said, you can sell it tomorrow. He said, you can take it to a dealership and, you know, trade it in tomorrow. Or you can ride that sucker till the wheels fall off. But there are no strings attached. And let me tell you what, we rode that sucker till the wheels fell off. It was, a, it was an amazing vehicle. It was a vehicle that had just over 100,000 miles, but it was a fairly new vehicle. It was a, a Ford Expedition Eddie Bauer edition, which means it was fully loaded, 
leather interior. It was an amazing vehicle. As a matter of fact, when we moved here a little over eight years ago, we were still driving that vehicle. It was an amazing vehicle. And as a matter of fact, once we were ready to get rid of that vehicle, we actually gifted that vehicle to somebody else, and it was still running. It was an amazing gift. And the Lord has been so miraculous in so many ways in, in our life, I'm sure. In your life, God has shown up and just, in, in the moment where you just needed provision, God has shown up. I'm sure it's happened a million times. But then there are times you hit in life where it feels like God should show up with some level of provision, but he doesn't show in the way or the manner that you anticipate or you expect him to show, right? Um, Earlier this year, for example, my family and I, like I said, we've now gone from a family of three to a family of six, and we're no longer a single-person car. We are a three-person or a, a single-car family. We are a three-car family. And um, I remember um, earlier this year, I was driving home from work, and I remember having this overwhelming sense um, that when I got home, I needed to pray over our vehicles, okay? Now, listen. Um, if you don't come from a Pentecostal background, okay, that's okay. But you need to understand that Pentecostals, we pray for everything, okay? We pray for food. We pray for vehicles. Some people pray for animals, okay? We pray for everything. And so I'm driving home, and I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, I just, you know, I really want you to, to cover our vehicles, let them last. God, get protection. And so I'm praying all this stuff, and I go to get out of the vehicle and go into the house. And I, I'm telling you, I sense this. I sense the Lord say, no, you need to go lay hands on your vehicles. And I'm like, God, my neighbors are going to think I'm a nut job, you know. And so I'm going, and I'm like praying in tongues, and I'm like, yes, Lord, declare the glory, you know. Let the, cause them to last all the days of our life, and, you know, cause them to, you know, be protected and protect our children and me and my wife. And I'm praying the fire down, son. And, and I walk away, and I'm like, man, God is so good, you know. I'm, I'm, I feel like there's like this protective orb around our vehicles now. And I go in the house, and wouldn't you know it, that within three days, every one of those vehicles went down in one way or another. One vehicle, we had to completely rebuild the transmission, thousands of dollars to rebuild this transmission. Another of the vehicle wasn't super severe. severe. My daughter's car wasn't really severe. We just had to get a little bit of work done on it. My vehicle, I was traveling with my son like, like three days after I prayed this prayer. All our vehicles are down. I'm out of town. It's just me and him. And it's like flooding where we are out of town. And I go to turn onto a road and I'm like, I'm not going down that road. I'm going to get stuck. And then we're going to be out of another car. And so I go to turn around and do a U-turn. As I'm doing a U-turn, I get stuck in a ditch, Right? I get stuck in a ditch, and I got to get somebody to tell me. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, Lord, why? What are you doing? Why did I, why was I so compelled to pray just to get to the place where we're down three vehicles in such a short amount of time? Now, as I look back on it, I'm not, you know, naive to the fact that God was probably giving us provision as far as protection goes because nobody in my family was injured on, on any level. We were never in any danger. A car didn't break down in the middle of, you know, I-20 or anything like that. So I'm sure that God was given provision, but it wasn't necessarily the provision that I had in mind that he was given to me. 
And if I've learned anything about God's provision, is it is incredibly mysterious. It is very frustrating at times. It's complex to understand at times. But this is probably the most important thing that I've learned to understand about provision is this, is that provision is rarely about what I want to happen and more times about what I need to happen. It is so few and far between. Now, I believe that God cares for our needs. I believe that. I believe that God desires to meet some of our needs, but I know that God desires to meet all, or some of our wants, but I know that God desires to meet all of our needs. Provision is primarily about needs, but when we want something, it seems we kind of put this idea on God of what we want, and we kind of force this idea of what we want on him and expect him to come and to do that thing. But I'll even say in scripture, it's not always done that way. When you look at the children of Israel, they, they escape out of Egypt and they're going up to the promised land and we all know they, they gotta go through this wilderness and they're stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. Do you know that the Lord provided for them? The Lord made provision for the Israelites as far as food goes because they didn't have any sustenance or anything like that. And the Lord provided for them. But do you know what kind of food he provided for them? Manna. Do you know what manna is? It is like a tier, it's like a tier or two below bread. It is, it is not like this luxurious ribeye. You know what I mean? Where the Israelites are like, this is wonderful. It is bread. It is a thin piece of bread, and that is what they are to sustain themselves on. When you look at Jonah as he's thrown off the ship, right? To end his own life, he's thrown off the ship. In the moment, he doesn't want a well to come and swallow him. But in the moment, that's exactly what Jonah needs. And so this morning, when we talk about provision and the provision and the benefits that God has given us through Christmas, the way that I would define provision is simply this. It's when God makes a way for our needs, okay? Our needs, our family's needs, society's needs, it's when God makes a way for our needs to fulfill his purposes according to his will, not our wants, necessarily. It is when God makes a way to meet our needs, to fulfill his purposes according to his will. This is why Paul would say, from prison, from prison, this is what he says. He says, the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ. When Jesus is speaking in Matthew 6, and he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added unto you. Do you know what he's talking about just before that? What things are going to be added unto you? They're not wants in a person's life. They are needs in a person's life. Their food, their shelter, their substance for their well-being. And so as we dip into the Christmas narrative this morning, we're going to see provision take place on a, a very simplistic level. We're going to see it happen on a societal level, which is where we're going to spend most of the attention. And we also see it happen on a spiritual level as God offers salvation to all of humanity. But I don't want us to focus just on the immediate needs. It's, it's strange, but it is very true that the vast majority of Christians, um, at least in the Western context, um, the vast majority of Christians, we... Uh, desire so much that the simple provisions be taken care of, that oftentimes that is where we stop, not understanding that 
that God through Christ has given so many more provisions and benefits for us. And today what we want to do is we want to take a look at it. So what I want to do is I want to, uh, I want to read the Christmas narrative. Okay, in your notes, you're going to see a very long portion of scripture. I kind of made a compilation of uh, the Christmas narrative from uh, the book of Matthew and Luke. I kind of put those together. I don't want you to freak out. I'm not going to read the entirety of it, okay, but I am going to read most of it. And the reason I'm going to read most of it is um, actually I wasn't going to read the majority of it. I was going to just read bits and pieces. But um, yesterday, my, my family and I, we were out shopping we were finishing up uh, our, our Christmas shopping, and, and we're done. We're actually done. This is the first time. That, that is a miraculous provision right there, that we are done three days before Christmas. Um, but my wife and I were out shopping yesterday, and um, we were in line checking out. And we were behind us. There were, there were four, I would say they were older teenagers or people in their early 20s. And they were having a very loud conversation behind us. It was you know, you couldn't avoid hearing everything that they were saying. We weren't eavesdropping. And I remember the, one of the girls in the conversation, um, she was talking to her friends and she said, you know, my mom suggested that we don't even do gifts at Christmas this year. And I told her, I said, mom, we got to do gifts at Christmas. Even Jesus got gifts on Christmas. And one of the young guys that was with her, and if you're here today, I am so sorry I'm telling this story, but the young guy that was with her, he looks over to her and he was like, yeah, Jesus did give gifts on Christmas. Those, those, those guys, they brought, him like, they brought him like sand or something, didn't they? <laughs> this is a real conversation, okay? And I'm just, I, I thought he was joking. And then she says, they didn't bring him sand. She said they brought him gold, frankincense, and, and lavender or something. <laughs> and... I thought in that moment, I turned around to him, I said, I could listen to you guys talk all day, you know? But I thought in that moment, I thought, they have no clue what they're talking about right now. And Christmas only comes around one time a year, so if when we get the opportunity to read the Christmas narrative, we probably need to read it in its entirety to make sure that we're educated and not just making assumptions about what happened. By the way, Mary was not a white female. All right, here we go. I'm kidding. Not Caucasian. The Bible says in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which is Mary's relative, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in a village in Galilee to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. To his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until after her son was born. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout all the Roman Empire. All people returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of, David, of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He took with him Mary, who was, whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her, to, for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by the sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. And suddenly the angel was joined by a host of others, the, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for the purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a righteous and devout man. And he was eagerly awaiting the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the, the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed him. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. But King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. After meeting with Herod, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
After the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up and flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. Stay there until I tell you to return because King Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary. And Herod sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the report by the wise men of the star's first appearance. And finally, when King Herod had died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt, and he said, get up, take the child and his mother back to the land of Egypt. Now, Father, as we open your word today, I pray that the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit will be with us today. I want to ask you, Lord, to open our hearts and our minds to see things that we've never seen. I want to ask you, Lord, to reveal yourself in a way that we've never known I want to ask you, Holy Spirit, to move in our hearts and our minds in a really powerful way in our time together. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now, this morning, like I said, we're going to talk about the three different levels of provision. We're going to talk about simple provision, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on, societal provision, and spiritual provision. The simple provision... Um, are things that we see in the Christmas narrative, like the fact that the wise men brought gifts for Joseph and Mary. Now, on the outset of that, that may not look like any type of provision, just simply a gift. But as you read the narrative and as you read historical evidence, what you begin to see is that it was likely that these gifts were the very provision that enabled Joseph and Mary to travel from Bethlehem hundreds of miles south to Egypt. And without those provisions, they might not have been able to make the trip to escape King Herod. We find the manger, which was not something that was probably a want for Joseph and Mary, but we find provision in that God gave them what they needed in the moment. We see provision made for Mary in that Joseph is raised up to protect her. And so we see all these simple provisions. We see the simple provisions in our lives. But once again, we can't stop at the simple day in and day out provisions. There is so much more to the story. And so today I want to focus most of our time on what I would call the societal provision that the Christmas story brings. And not just societal provision in the moment or in the narrative of the Christmas story, but provision that has been going on all throughout human history and benefits that we still enjoy today because of Christ's influence at Christmas and throughout his lifetime. So for example, when we see Joseph, what we are really seeing is God establishing a new idea of what manhood should look like for the Christian community. Now, Joseph was just a young man. We see these paintings and photos of, of Joseph, and he looks like a grown man with a beard and all these things. Listen to me, Joseph, at, at the oldest, Joseph was 17 years old. Most scholars put him between 15 and 16, but he was a young man. The only thing that he really had going for him was that he was a descendant of King David. He had that genealogy in his bloodline, but that didn't give him any provision in his life. He didn't get like an extra income tax back because he was related to King David. He was a simple carpenter. As a matter of fact, in Joseph's life, in the Bible, we don't even see any point where Joseph even says any words in the entire scripture. We see where, where Mary responds. We see where the shepherds respond. But Joseph, we don't have one word recorded from him in scripture. But let me tell you what we do have. We have the actions of Joseph 
that more than make up for the silence of Joseph. When you begin to see that this young teenage man, I mean, can you imagine, fellas, let me talk to you for a second. Can you imagine as a teenager with testosterone coursing through your existence, your girlfriend comes to you and tells you that she's pregnant by God and you are just supposed to accept that? No, I'm not accepting it. The, the anger and the adrenaline, everything is rising up within me and I'm angry. But the Bible says that Joseph's response was counterintuitive to the way that the average person would respond. Joseph goes to Mary and he says, Mary, I don't want to humiliate you. I'm brokenhearted, but I don't want to humiliate you. And so I'm not going to divorce you openly. I'm not going to make you a public spectacle, but I am going to divorce you pri uh, privately and I am going to divorce you quietly and I really hope the best for you. You gotta understand, in this society, this was counterculture for Joseph. In the, in, the, in the Roman culture, even in the Jewish culture, it was not so much an environment that was really conducive for men to develop strong character. Men uh, in that day, uh, how you rose to power or to strength or were identified as a strong man were very different than what we experience today in Western culture. In that culture, it was so much not about how many people you could comfort, but how many people you could conquer. It was how many lands you were able to overtake. It was about how many women you were able to sexualize. It was about how fast you could, um, you could use your political power to make decisions that would affect other people. That's how men rose to the occasion. It was not about other people. It was not about service. It was not about humility. But yet in this, in this very culture, God chooses a man, not of physical strength, not of political savvy, but he chooses a man of incredible character to raise his only son. And in this moment, what God is doing is he's beginning a trajectory of redefining what manhood should look like in the Christian community through the life of Joseph. And as Jesus is raised up under this man, at least for the first few years of his life, Joseph is teaching Jesus how to, how to be a man of character, how to embrace humility, how to embrace poise under pressure, how to, how to really love and really serve other people. And I'll tell you this, today, we have the benefit of having good men in our churches and good fathers raising our children. But let me tell you what, it's not because the culture is dictating that we have good men. It's because 2,000 years ago, God began something new that had never been done in human history. He was saying, this is the new way that men should go. And when you look back through human history, the influence that Christ has had on men is astounding. Beginning with the Apostle Paul who was bent on the destruction. He was filled with anger and indignation towards Christians. Some would say that he wouldn't even just arrest them, but he would participate in the murder of Christians because his heart was so hardened. And in, in Paul's life, he goes from a man, even in scriptures, even after he becomes a Christian, he begins as a man, when you read some of his first writings, he begins talking about how amazing he is. Have you ever noticed this with Paul? Some people say that the thorn in Paul's flesh was actually pride, not a physical issue. But listen to this. 
Paul, in the beginning of his writings, after, after a few years of becoming a Christian, Paul, when he's writing, what does he begin talking about? He starts talking about all of his accomplishments, who mentored him. He talks about his pedigree. He talks about how he was at the top of his class at rabbi school or whatever. He starts talking about all that he is. And what you begin to see is that as Paul writes letters later and later in his life, he goes from a man who is so elevated and puffed up with himself to a man in his last letter that he writes to Timothy. He goes from being the man above men to being the sinner among sinners. He goes, the trajectory of what Paul was and what Paul became was the essence of what Christ came to do to redefine what men should look like in the new Christian community. And we experience those benefits today. I remember a few years ago, um, my, uh, my, my son, the, the Hendersons, some of you guys may not know this, most of you probably don't know this, but uh, the Henderson men, uh, some people would call it a curse, but um, we are stricken with this thing called handsomeness. And... Um, <laughs> My poor son inherited that, and I'm so sorry for him. Um, but a few years ago, when he was like in second grade, this is four or five years ago, um, it, was, it, was, it was an age, it was a little bit premature, but a lot of the younger girls were starting to notice my son, which I thought odd, but I was like, all right, go, buddy, you know? And um, he comes home from school one day, and he says, Dad, I've, I've, I've got a problem with a girl. And you know the dad and me, I'm like, oh, yeah, you do, you know? Um, and so he comes and he says, I said, well, buddy, what's the problem? And he says, well, uh, there's this girl that likes me. And I said, well, how do you know she likes me? He said, she wrote me a letter. I said, well, read me the letter. And he said, okay. It says, I love you and you should love me too. <laughs> and I said, buddy, that's awesome, man. They, she just, she loves you. You know, this is great. He said, dad, let me finish. He said, the letter says, I love you and you should love me too. And if not, you'll regret it. <laughs> and I said, I said, oh my, we do have a problem, buddy. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, buddy, you just got to be honest with this, talk, with this child, this little girl. Um, I said, I said you, you just got to tell her that you're not interested and, and that you like her as a friend and be kind and everything. And so he'd go to school and he'd struggle, you know, to, to, to find a way to say it and all this. And finally, it just, it came to this crescendo. And he comes to me and he said, he says, Dad, here's, here's the deal. I know what I have to do. He said, I want to be truthful with her, but I don't want to be hurtful to her. And in that moment, it wasn't anything that I had developed in my son. It wasn't some virtuous thing that I had taught my son. In that moment of him being a Christian and having the spirit of God living inside of him, the fruit of Christ began to spring up within him. And all of a sudden, his, his, his being was not so much about how many girls like me, what I can get away with, I'm just going to cut her and run. His reality became, I need to tell her the truth, but I got to do it in an honorable way. And I'm telling you this, today I'm so thankful for the trajectory that Joseph set in the Christmas story. Because today, we as a nation, we as a people benefit, especially in Christendom, we benefit from godly men who, who possess humility, who prioritize character, who strive to serve other people instead of just getting what they want for themselves. And listen to me, I'm not talking about weakness I'm not talking about effeminate men. That's not what I'm talking about. Jesus was the antithesis of all of that. Jesus was a strong and fortified man. I'm not talking about weakness. I'm talking about kindness and compassion and service. 
And Jesus set that up for all of us to experience. In the life of Mary, we see the provision of God elevating women to their rightful place of equality. Mary is just a, a, a teenage girl. It's likely she's just a poor little peasant girl. It, she's not the Mary that you see in the photos where like, she has the halo. Mary did not walk around with the halo. Did you know that? Right? Every photo I've ever seen that has Mary. She didn't have a halo that we could see. She didn't have rosy cheeks. She was just a, a, a peasant girl. She was a peasant girl who was likely illiterate. She was, uh, she was probably, you know, her feet were probably dirty because she was running errands for her parents with no shoes. And she was a young girl. What we learn is that Mary was even younger than Joseph. Some people put her at the age as young as 12 when all this takes place. Other people say 13 or 14. But, but regardless, she is, she is a young girl. And, and what you got to understand is that Mary, the, the environment, the culture that Mary was raised in was not conducive or appreciative of the female gender. Um, and, and very, very much the opposite. In many ways, it was a very oppressive culture. Um, in Roman and, and Greek times, um, women had very difficult lives. And, and I'm not trying to exaggerate. I know that, that there were many men that treated their wives well and all this kind of stuff, but but generally speaking, women were considered, at best, second-class citizens. Most, most husbands treated their wives in the same manner that they would treat their child, okay? So it was a very difficult uh, scenario that, that women were raised in. in. In the Roman culture, women, they were taught that, you know, your husband shouldn't, uh, shouldn't commit adultery, your husband shouldn't cheat on you, but if he does, ah, just get over it. You know, whereas a woman committed adultery, she could be instantly put to death. And so, so Mary is raised in this, this culture that is not very appreciative of women. As a matter of fact, even in the Jewish culture, um, there, were, there, were, there was a lot of oppression towards women. Um, one, of the most famous, uh, one of the most famous prayers of first century Jews was, was incredibly um, sexist against, against women. L listen to the prayer. The men would stand and they would say, I thank thee, Lord, that thou hast not made me a Gentile, that thou hast not made me a slave, and that thou hast not made me a woman. I didn't say it. They said it. I'm just reading it. I don't agree. I'm just saying. You're looking at me like I agree. I want you to imagine pastor coming in next Sunday, walking up on the stage and saying, men, men, Rise, women remain. Pray after me. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not a Gentile slave. That would never happen in this culture. If it did, he wouldn't be a pastor very long. Okay, and the reason that it doesn't happen now, and to that degree, that publicly, that widespread, is because when God chose to entrust His Son to someone, He entrusted His Son to a female. You realize that the, per, the first person to ever accept the concept of the Messiah was, was Mary. Mary was a hero among women. And furthermore, let me just say this. Mary is a hero to us today. I know in the Protestant movement, we, you know, we, we kind of just shun a little bit of Mary because in Catholicism, it's, it's said that they worship Mary, and so we want to stay as far away from that. Listen to me. Mary was a hero. She was a devout believer. She was full of faith, and she needs to be honored by us even in this culture. And so, so as, as God entrusts a young woman, what he's doing is not just saying, okay, here's a peasant girl. I have pity on her. I'm going to let her raise my son. This will be awesome. Good experiment. No. God is setting a new trajectory. He is, he is sounding the alarm, and he's saying, listen, things in history are about to change. 
things are about to be very, very different than what they have been up to this point. And Jesus in his life continued on with that pattern. You realize Jesus and all of his followers, even the the dozen, even outside of the 12, there were women, former prostitutes, women who had been previously demon-possessed. Women were allowed to follow them wherever he went. That was unheard of, that he would let a woman come and kneel at his feet and worship him and have a pure relationship with her. That was not something that was common in that day. As Jesus hangs on the cross, Breathing his final breaths. Do you know what's on his mind? It's not Peter. It's not the pain. It's his mama. In his final moments, he looks to his his friend John. And he says, John, listen to me. Whatever you got to do, make sure that Mary's taken care of. Because now you're her son. And now she's your mother. When Jesus rises from the dead, he steps out of the tomb. Do you know the first human being he encounters? A woman! He is saying something without saying it. He is saying something by his actions and what he is doing in the world. It is a new thing. And listen to me say this. We reap those benefits today because of what Jesus did. We Listen to me. Women, ladies, listen. If, If you want to thank anyone for living in a nation that possesses where we strive for women to have equal rights, do you know who we should thank for that? Jesus, not the government. If it is the government, it's only because they were influenced by Christian values. When we look across the world and we see these nations in the Middle East and and women are getting an opportunity to vote in their democracy for the very first time, ironically, do you know who they have to thank for that? They have Christ to thank for that because Christian influence is the only religious influence that said women should be of equal value as men. It's an astounding thing. We need to celebrate that. We need to, we need to celebrate. The fact, listen, I don't know how you feel politically. And I've got, trust me, I've got opinions. But I'm saying this. Like it, love it, leave it, whatever. The fact that a woman could run for president in our nation is not a testament to how great she is. And I'll, I'll, furthermore, I'll say it's not a testament to how great we are as a people. It's a testament for what Christ has done to make provision for women to be of equal value and to be everything that God has called them to be. Listen to me. I live in a home with four ladies. Y'all need to pray for me and my son that we have this estrogen meter in our house. It has exploded multiple times, okay? Um, no, I wouldn't have it any other way. I love all my girls, but let me tell you this. The problem that we run into in, in a culture like ours is that, um, like C.S. Lewis said, he said, the devil is always trying to trick us into extremism, right? And so what happened before Christ is we had women who were enslaved and men who were empowered. When Christ came, he said, no, 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 there should be a level playing field here. Women are of equal value with men, and we should treat them as such and allow them to do what God has called them to do. But right now, where our nation is trending, we're no longer here and here where where women are are enslaved and men are empowered. Now we're we're trending to a place where some women, especially in progressive movements, are saying, no, 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 men have been empowered long enough. Now it's time for men to be enslaved and women to be empowered. And I'm going to tell you, that's equally just as wrong as this over here. It is all about this right here. It's about making sure that there is equality among the genders, among the sexes. And God has done that through Christ. 
Listen, I want my girls and my family, my wife owns her own business. I mean, she, she's amazing. My, my girls are just amazing. And I'm going to tell you this. I want my girls to be everything that God has called them to be. I don't want them to be anything less than what God has called them to be. But listen to this. I don't want them to be anything more than what God's called them to be either. I want them to be exactly what Christ has called them to be. And because of Christmas, it began a trend that now women can do things that in centuries, for cultures, and thousands of years that they were never able to do again. We have Christ to thank for it. In the shepherds, in the shepherds, we see God equalizing those who are marginalized on the fringes of society. You realize that the shepherds, um, you know, all my life uh, as a Christian, I've always like immortalized shepherds. I've always thought they were the most amazing out of all the biblical characters. I remember last year we were in Israel and we were riding around and it was my dream. I got to see so many things, but one of my dreams, I wanted to see a, an authentic nomadic shepherd. That's all I wanted to see, right? And I told some of the people that and Sarah Cabra was with us on that trip and she saw like 46 different shepherds and I saw none. And every time she, she goes, Corey, there's a shepherd. And I missed it. But it was one of my dreams because I've always, I've had so much um, uh, reverence and admiration for shepherds. But when you do like historical research, do you know what you find? In, in, the, in the Old Testament, shepherds were, were somewhat revered. This is why David would say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is why uh, some of the prophets and the priests, they were, they were called the shepherds of Israel. But, but bleeding from the Old Testament into the New Testament, some things economically changed with shepherds. And shepherds became a very marginalized people group in the land of Israel. There are some rabbis that would say that, that they were of the equivalent of dung sweepers, okay? And I don't know a whole lot about, you know, Israeli economics, but I would think dung sweeper is not up here, okay? And, and some rabbis would equate shepherds on some of these levels. And so in, in the Christmas narrative, I would say that the shepherds represent a marginalized sect of humanity. They represent the poor, they represent the weak, they represent outcasted, the sick, orphans, widows, they kind of represent um, this, this whole thing. And what I want us to understand is this, is that throughout most of history, people on the fringes of society are often embraced for their humanity and often ostracized because of their illness or disease or whatever the case may be. Even in Jewish culture, if you read through the book of Leviticus, you will find that, that people were, were, um, who had the disease of leprosy Many of the people, they were, they were commanded that they could do certain things, they should do certain things, and they were not allowed to do other things. They had to live outside of the community with the rest of the Jewish people. They couldn't live in. And any time that they were to come into the village or to the marketplace or anything like that, the Bible gave very strict guidelines for what lepers could and could not do. The Bible says that they had to wear clothes that were torn, that were like... Um, like mourners' clothes that were just torn and, and, and ragged. Um, did you realize that, that lepers were not allowed to brush their hair? Their hair had to be unkept. And the reason that the Bible identified it is so that they could be identified when they began to walk into the community or into the marketplace so moms could take their babies and, and, and hide them from the leprosy. Right, And so, so you have all these things where, where people uh, of, of illnesses are ostracized. You have people who were 
poor who are put on the fringes. You have people who are orphans. Even last week, Pastor mentioned that, that during this time frame, there, are, um, there, there were certain caves and certain areas, certain areas of a forest where a child, if it was born with, with a health defect or if it was born ill or born out of wedlock, that the child could be taken to one of these locations and left and either the elements or the animals could take care of the child's life. I mean, it was, a, it was a very rough environment for people who were ostracized and people who were on the fringes. However, I find it fascinating that out of all the people that God could reveal himself to first, outside of Joseph and Mary, out of all the people that he could reveal himself to first, he chose to go to the fringes and to the marginalized people that society would look to and say that they don't have a place or a purpose. He would go to the shepherds and he would say, blessed are you shepherds because you were the first to hear that there is a king, the Messiah. Yes, the Lord, he is the one who is coming. And I'm going to tell you what, in that moment, we, in, in the beginning, and all the way out throughout Jesus' life, he teaches us to care for the marginalized. You realize he teaches us to care for those who are on the outskirts of society. Today, we reap the benefits of that. Do you know how many hospitals have been established because of Christian influence? This is why they're called things like St. John, St. Mary's, St. Jude's. They're called St. something because they have been influenced by the Christian culture. And without the influence of the Christian culture, we don't know what certain things would look like. Orphanages, as early as the 1200s, the first orphanage that, that we can find in history, was established by a pope because he was trying to care for the orphans. You understand that our world is drastically different today because God was making a statement without saying it that the marginalized are just as important as those who are not. Even in our nation, you can see the effects of the Christian influence for people who are marginalized. Back in the 1800s, the, the, the sinful atrocity of, of slavery as, as it was in existence, Abraham Lincoln steps to the plate as the president of the United States, and, and he takes measures to abolish slavery in that day. And there, there's some debate, was Abraham Lincoln a Christian? Was he not a Christian? I don't really know. Frankly, at this point, I don't really care, but this is what I do know. Abraham Lincoln did not abolish slavery as a political move. He did it as a moral move. He did it because his mother was a deeply devout Christian who taught him and instilled in him Christian values about the dignity of human life. And so the Christian influence, whether he was a Christian or not, has had tremendous repercussions in our nation today. I remember uh, most of you have seen the movie um, back in the 40s. It was called um, It's a Wonderful Life. You seen that movie? Wonderful movie. It's about a guy named George Bailey. And uh, this guy, he's... he's He's a good man, but he's just kind of at, at, at his wit's end. He's got all kind of trouble in life, and he's just really frustrated with what he is in life. And he decides that he's going to a place he's going to end his life. And um, he climbs up like on a bridge or something. And, and all of a sudden, there's, there's angelic intervention. And, and the angel comes and, you know, convinces him not to, not to end his life. But he says, listen, I want to show you what the world would be like if you had never been born. And so the whole movie is like this depiction of what the world would be like without all the good things that George Bailey had done for people in the world. And I'm going to tell you this. I don't, I don't want to imagine a world where Christ hasn't been born. 
You understand that the world would look drastically, incredibly different if Christ had never been born. And I don't want to imagine a world like that. And so we see in the shepherds that God is, is reaching for the marginalized. In Simeon, the, the devout religious man, we see that God is evaluating the hearts of those who are religious. In that day, holiness was or, or uh, religious activity was like the equivalent of holiness. It wasn't so much about the heart as it was what people were doing. Jesus steps on the scene and totally changes the game. He says, listen, it's not about the moves that you're making. It's about the motives to the moves that you're making. And Jesus begins to evaluate the heart. He begins to set up a system, a new religion, or a, a branch of Judaism that would basically say this. It is not about what you can do for the Lord. It's about what the Lord has done for you. And we see this in the life of Simeon and in the Christmas story. In Jesus, the Christ child, we see the endorsement of God on the value of every human life, specifically children. You realize that God could have, Jesus could have showed up like as a man. He could have just been like a dude in the wilderness, right? Just showed up and strolled in town, doing his thing. Like Adam and Eve, that's how God created them. He didn't create them as toddlers. And he was like, come on, guys. That's not how he created them. He created them as man and as woman fully grown, and he could have done the same thing with his son. But in making his son a helpless infant child that was dependent on a mother and a father, God was saying something without saying something. He was saying that the helpless need to be cared for. He was saying that children need to be valued as the mother and father took the infant Jesus and they fled to Egypt. It was to escape the slaughter of a vengeful king. In that moment, God was expressing the value that he places on children. Because you've got to understand, in, in, in some ancient cultures, children oftentimes were nothing more than a means to an end. When a, when a child is born, in some cultures, children are amazing, they love and are cared for, but in a lot of ancient cultures, they would become the slaves of their parents, or they would become property that was to be sold. There are a lot of things that, that parents would do with their children that were not honoring for their children. And the sad reality is this, is that even in our culture today, and in many cultures across the land, we have skipped over what Christ has done, and we've gone back to the ways of the ancients. There's an idol in the Bible by the name of Moloch. And the, the, the idol Moloch, it was said that he would demand child sacrifices. And when a, when, a, when a mother and father would come and they would give their child as a sacrificial offering to this idol, the idol promised them financial stability and ideal comfort in their life. Can I tell you today that the spirit of Moloch is alive and well in our nation? Based on the same premise a financial stability, and an ideal comfort in life. And it's under the guise of abortion or under the guise of women's health care. I'm telling you, listen to me. When, when we live in a land where, did you realize that 65% of children that are diagnosed with Down syndrome in our nation are aborted? 65%, that's a lot, right? In Iceland, it's 99%. In Britain, it's over 80% of children, as, as the child is in the womb, if they are diagnosed with Downs, that, that a mother chooses to abort. And listen to me, I'm not, I'm not shaming 
mothers or anything like that, God have mercy. I, I, I agree with what Pastor said. I think mothers oftentimes are the, the greatest victim out of, out of all this. I think they're deceived. But we operate in such a way that reflects the ideals of the idol Moloch. And if we're not careful, we will continue to slip into this thing, and we will incur the judgment of God just as Israel did. It's a sad reality. But when Jesus shows up, he shows up as a baby. Shows up as a helpless infant. And can I tell you this, even throughout all of Jesus' life, you realize that Jesus was never annoyed with children, right? Now, his disciples were annoyed with children, but Jesus was annoyed with the disciples that were annoyed with the children. The disciples regarded him and said, no, 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 let the, let the master, let him, no, just let him be. He needs to pray, you know, let, him, let the adults take care, you know, stay away, kids, go play. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. He said, no, no, no. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like that right there. He said, let the little children come to me. He embraced the value of every person he came in contact with. And because of that today, we have an opportunity to do the same. We talk so much, and Pastor's going to talk in a couple of weeks uh, regarding abor abortion, all this. But let me just say this. Man, we have, we have one of the greatest opportunities in all of human history. Not just to stand against abortion, but to stand for children. We have an incredible opportunity that, that rests before us, and we need to be faithful to do that. And the Magi, we see God embracing all people of all races. These Magi were men from the East. Most people believe that they came from Arabia. We think that they were astrologers. Um, uh, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh um, to the King Jesus. Um, and what you got to understand about this, this is incredibly uncommon for people of different religions and different cultures to invade uh, other lands and worship one of their gods. It was uh, most lands in the ancient world, they were not globalized like our world is globalized today. They were very, they were very uh, segregated, uh, primarily based upon their race and then their religion and, and so forth. And I'm going to just tell you this. Listen, in this day, in Israel, uh, prejudice was a real thing, right? You have the people called the Samaritans. They were considered half-breed Jews, right? They were considered half-breeds because at some point in history, uh, a few hundred years beforehand, uh, the people in the north, the Jews in the north, um, intermarried with people from Babylon, and, and they produced a new race and an impure bloodline, which the Jews called it. And so the Jews hated them. They, they looked on them with disdain and disgust, and, and they hated them. As a matter of fact, uh, Samaria is like in the middle of Israel, and, and to get from point A in the south to point B in the north, most Jews, to avoid setting foot on Samaritan land, would go miles and miles and miles out of their way just so they wouldn't have to come in contact with Samaritans, right? So, so racism, prejudice has always been a very real thing, and then all of a sudden, when the Messiah makes his grandiose appearance on the planet, who does the Father send to worship him first? People of another religion, people of another pedigree, people of another race, people from another region. He sends these people to worship the Christ child, and in doing that, he is foreshadowing the coming of the kingdom of God. He's foreshadowing a, a, a great day when it's no longer just about the people of Israel and it's no longer just this intense focus on the Jewish people, but the world is now about all the people of the world. It's about every people of every race. God sets this amazing trajectory for us. 
And I'm going to just tell you this. I think, I think that if, in our nation, we got a lot of work to do. But I'm going to tell you this. In a church like I, and I believe this. I'm not just saying this because I work here, okay? But I am saying this because I believe it. I believe that God is going to use the people of God in our nation to do far more repair and reconciliation regarding race than the government could do in a thousand years. And I believe that it begins with churches just like ours. Look around, main auditorium, look around at the congregation. You will see a very diverse and loving people group, and it's the beginning of the work that God is trying to do on a massive global scale. And so it's not just about the, the simple provisions that God brings. It's not just about the societal provisions. Obviously, it's also about the spiritual provision that God brings. When God appears to the shepherds, he reveals through the angels this good news of a new work that God is going to do in the land. And when he does it, it's symbolic of the fact that God is about to open up the supernatural realm in a way that he has never done before. As a matter of fact, when, when Jesus steps into his pulpit for the very first time, do you know what he says? He has an agenda, and the agenda is spiritual in nature that is going to cause the oppression of people who are possessed to lift. It's going to cause the freedom of those who are captive. This is what he said. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me, he has supernaturally empowered me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. When, when God shows up through the angels, he is signaling that he is about to work in a supernatural manner that he's never done before. And it's not just for physical healings. It's to lift things in the spiritual realm. It's to break things off of people that, that are demonic and of darkness. And so he is revealing this awesome thing. And I'm telling you, as we look, and there, there's more. I just don't have time. You guys are not listening quickly at all today. But I'm telling you, listen, it is provision after provision after provision after provision we see all throughout the scripture. And as amazing as they are, as astounding and wonderful as all these provisions are, at the same time, they can be equally as meaningless. Because what does it matter if men have character and women have equal rights and we value the lives of children and we can all come together in a global society? What is the value of that if you lose your own soul? So in Christmas, in the narrative, we see not only all these provisions, but we see the provision for eternal salvation to every man, woman, boy, child that would come, every single one. In King Herod's life, in the story, we see the rebellion of humankind. You realize that, that Herod, we look on him with disgust, and we should. He was a corrupt, evil, wicked man that would slaughter at, at any cost. But can I tell you that Herod in this narrative is simply a representative of the human race? Because though you may have never slaughtered a child and you may not be egotistical and hungry for power, the truth remains is this, is that the same sin that's coursing through his veins is coursing through my veins and it's coursed through your veins. And we see the rebellion of all humankind as Jesus makes the declaration 
that the reason that he has come is to save and to seek those who are lost, those who are without hope, those who are in rebellion against God. And in his life, in the life of King Herod, we see the rebellion of all mankind. And I'm going to tell you this. In the same way that King Herod was resisting the lordship of Christ, every human being on the planet fights that same battle. You understand it wasn't about, for Herod, it wasn't about his insecurity of an infant. That's not what it was about. He was afraid that Christ was going to come and take over everything that he had worked so hard for. And do you know that every person fights that same battle? Every person has to contend with the lordship of Christ and decide whether they are going to try to kill it or whether they are going to submit to it. And thankfully, in the life of Jesus, we see the opportunity for us to receive. We see the opportunity of reconciliation, of repentance, of restoration, not just between humans and for a good life and all this, but we see the reconciliation between a rebellious people and a righteous God. We see them come together when heaven meets earth in the life of Jesus. It is, it is, it is about simple provision. It is about societal provision. It is about all of these things. But can I tell you, in the end, it's like C.S. Lewis said, it was about the Son of God becoming a Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God? You realize in the end, in the end, it was all about the death on the cross. What began in a manger was not the final story. Furthermore, I'll say not even the essence of Christmas or the Christmas season. It was a threshold that had to be crossed so that there could be reconciliation between heaven and earth. And I thank God today, thank God today, for this great gift of Christmas. So this morning, I want to ask you to stand real quick. We're going to close. You guys listened really well this last five minutes. Thank you so much. I became a Christian in January of 1999. And as I reflect back on the events that transpired to get me to a place where I was willing to accept the lordship of Christ. I see over and over and over again the provision that God made for me as an individual. Like simple provision that, that God had made for me. It wasn't societal, it wasn't, you know, world-altering or anything like that. But it was provision that God made for me. And step after step after step, where when I look back and I reflect, I say, these dots connect, and it's amazing that they connect because I don't see how logically they could have connected any other way outside of the hand of God. And I'll tell you this, this, this week you're probably going to run into some folks, if you're, if you're a Christian here today, you're probably going to run into some folks over the next week, whether it be shopping when, you know, Cousin Eddie shows up at dinner or, you know, over New Year's. You're probably going to run into some people who don't know Christ. A savior. I, I would almost guarantee it. And the reality is this, is that just as God's provision brought you here this morning, your path will cross with someone who doesn't know Christ based on that same type of provision. And my hope is that when those paths cross, you'll be able to explain the truest, realist, most authentic reason of Christmas. 
Not that a baby was born, but a Savior was born. And maybe you're here today and, like, you, you don't know the Lord. You know, I, I, I remember sitting in church services a lot of times just think, just wrestling back and forth. And, and, and I'm telling you, every one of those, I look back and I'm like, that was the provision of God. He was chipping away at the, the, the hardness of my heart. He was chipping away. His spirit was doing work. And I'm going to just tell you this. Here today, this may be a provisional moment that God has opened for you to accept the salvation, the forgiveness, the new life. Listen, not about becoming a good person. This is not about bad people becoming good people. This is about dead people becoming alive people. And I would say that I don't want you to miss an opportunity. Nobody's going to force you or anything like that. Pastor Justin and uh, the ministry team, as a matter of fact, I want to ask the ministry team to go ahead. Pastor Darren's here. I'm here. If, if you don't know Christ and you want to make a decision for him today, we, we want to pray for you. We don't, want to miss, we don't want you to miss an opportunity. But I'll tell you so many times, before I was a Christian, I was just like the great, you guys are familiar with the poet um, Oscar Wilde. It was said about him that he, he struggled with the Christian faith all throughout his life. He never would commit to Christ. He just struggled with the rationale and all this kind of stuff. And it was said at the end of his life that Oscar Wilde would attend church sometimes, but that he was, he was always and forever walking towards the altar with his back to the altar, but with his eyes on the exit sign. Oscar Wilde died without Christ. He had every opportunity, but he decided every single time when provision was made that he may be walking towards the altar, but he's not going to surrender to it. He's going to keep his eyes on what he wants, not on the provision of Christ. I don't want that to be you. I'm so thankful that wasn't me. It was a lot of times, but I'm thankful it didn't end that way. And today we want to give you an opportunity to accept Christ. Today we're going to pray. Our ministry teams are here. Myself, Pastor Darren, Pastor Justin, and the other auditorium. If you have any needs, if you just want to worship or if you want to accept Christ, we want to ask you to come and have prayer. And we love you so much. We hope you have a tremendous Christmas. We hope to see you on Christmas Eve. It is going to be a glorious celebration. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for every good and perfect thing that has come from the Father of Heavenly Lights. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for the benefits of Christmas that we still experience today. More than any of it, God, we thank you for the birth of a Savior who would die for sinners like me, and he would make a way for relationship and reconciliation. We bless you this morning. Do your work, Holy Spirit, in us and through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen, amen. Amen. The Lord bless you so much. If you got to go, feel free. Otherwise, if you'd like to come and pray, we welcome you.